This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Kindred is, remarkably enough, the first on-screen adaptation of any work by the great science fiction writer Octavia Butler. It's the story of Dana, a young black woman who suddenly finds herself transported into the past onto a Maryland plantation in 1815. The reason why this keeps happening to her has something to do with her connection to the son of the plantation's cruel owner. And while she tries to get a handle on that, she makes both bitter enemies and surprising allies in the past and present day. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Glenn Weldon. And today we're talking about the Hulu series Kindred on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, a people's history tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Joining us today is Code Switch senior correspondent Karen Grigsby Bates. Hey, Karen. Hey. Also joining us is Soraya Nadia McDonald, senior culture critic for Anscape. Hey, Soraya. Hello again. Hello again. Let's get to it. So, Kindred begins in 2016 LA, where young Dana, played by Mallory Johnson, buys a home which brings her closer to her estranged Aunt Denise, played by Issa Davis. But then she starts finding herself getting pulled back in time, always to a Maryland plantation run by Tom Wyland and his wife Margaret, played by Ryan Quantin and Gail Rankin. Every time she goes back, she becomes more entwined with the fate of their young son Rufus, played by David Alexander Kaplan. The action unfolds along parallel tracks. In the modern day, Dana's aunt and uncle, a couple of nosy neighbors, and a sweet waiter she hooks up with begin to worry about her safety and sanity. In the past, Dana tries to figure out her connection to Rufus and pass as a slave, drawing more and more people into her dangerous situation, including that poor, sweet waiter Kevin, played by Micah Stock. In adapting Butler's classic 1979 novel, showrunner Brandon Jacobs Jenkins made a bold bet. The FX on Hulu series consists of eight episodes, but only covers about a third of the book. A second season has not yet been announced as we tape this. All eight episodes of the first season are streaming now on Hulu. We'll be talking about all of them. Soraya, let me start with you. What do you think? I think as a TV show... Uh, this particular iteration works fairly well. The pacing, I think, is a bit choppy at times. Mm-hmm. But I was really glad to see uh, some unfamiliar names among the cast, mm-hmm. particularly Mallory Johnson, who stars as Dana. She gives the production a sort of grounding. And I think that's in part because, you know, we can identify with her. She's living in 2016 LA. She's moved there from Brooklyn. You know, she's starting a new life. You know, we kind of have this sort of empty foundation um, when all of these things start to happen to her, as opposed to in the book where, you know, she's married to this man, Kevin, he's her husband. And that kind of, you know, throws everything up in the air a bit. And allows, I think, Brendan and the writing staff possibilities to open up some doors 
that work easier and better uh, with the sort of structure of episodic TV than they do if they had stuck so closely to the text. Absolutely. I mean, that's one thing that uh, the showrunner has talked about a lot in interviews about how he found pockets where, you know, they'd spend three weeks back in the past and the the book would just kind of lied over that. And he said, well, let's unpack that. Let's spend a little bit more time there. Karen, what'd you think? I liked it. I'm old enough to have remembered when Roots was a big thing. And uh-huh. I was looking at it thinking, this is not Roots 2.0, but I remember how shocked people were, you know, sort of shocked and engaged at the same time when Roots came out. The whole business of the horrors of slavery, the indignity, the sort of grinding, always working, always at the beck and call of somebody else. People understood that a little bit better, but that almost seems prettified compared to what we're seeing in this series. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad they've gotten a little bit less precious about it. Um, I thought the actors were terrific. I'm glad they weren't people that we would normally be used to seeing. I was sort of surprised to see uh, a couple of people pop up who had been in other things that I recognized, like the husband half of the nosy neighbors had actually been uh, one of the alpha males in Billions. That's who that guy is. So it was a little bit of cognizant dissonance there because it's like, well, that's from a whole other century. I had to make myself work a little harder (laughs) because I recognized his face. But on the whole, I liked it. You know, I think quite possibly the most familiar actor in this series is Ryan Quanton, uh-huh. who notably I think most folks remember from True Blood, but who is really, you can see how much he's grown since that series. And he's uh, he is no longer the hot, hunky, shirtless hero. <laughs> Aisha, what'd you think? Well, I come at this from the perspective of being someone who has not actually read Kindred and is not all that familiar with uh, Octavia Butler. So I had no expectations really going into this. I knew vaguely what it was about. It involved time travel and it it had to do with generational trauma and these other themes that are swirling throughout the show. Because I had no expectations and no really sense of the narrative, it made for a very interesting experience for me because I left it at the end having way more questions than any sort of clarity on what I had just watched in over the course of eight episodes. Mm-hmm. For one thing, my only expectation really was that I thought this was going to be a miniseries, a standalone series. And yep. then I did do when it ended, I was like, wait, <laughs> this yeah. can't be yeah. possible. Yeah. <laughs> there's so right. there's so many loose ends here. And then I I was able to finally kind of suss out the creator has has said that he actually wants to make more uh, seasons, which I think is kind of a, that's a real crapshoot to throw out there because- Especially now. Especially in this climate, when it comes to studios renewing and picking up shows, I think it's very a very bold choice to leave so many things unanswered at the end of that. So that was kind of jarring for me. And once I figured out, I was like, oh, okay. But then I also still felt as though I had all these questions and I don't think it's necessarily- a good thing that even if there are going to be more seasons, I it felt a little kind of aimless and I didn't feel a sense of urgency that I kind of felt that the character Dana needed to have throughout most of the season. I came away with questions like, why is Dana into Kevin to begin with? I don't fully <laughs> buy this relationship even 
under the circumstances, the very bizarre circumstances they're having. Like, who is Dana beyond longing for her mom? Uh We know at the beginning that she aspires to be a TV writer, but that's like about it. And then over eight episodes, I kind of wanted a little bit more characterization. I came away from it feeling as though I knew more about the dynamics of the white family, the slave-owning family, than I did knowing, understanding Dana and her relationship to everyone else in her life, her family members. I wanted to really like this and I wanted to really get into this. And there were definitely moments here and there where I felt like it was touching upon things that I was looking for. Like, what does it mean to be a Black woman from this period who is put back in time? And we have like a very different understanding and we have all this historical knowledge of what we think slavery was like and and what we believe happened then. I just wanted more of that feeling, and I Mm -hmm. didn't get that from this show, even though I really, really wanted to feel that. I suspect what you're picking up on when you talk about the aimless quality is a function of the showrunners adapting the book and taking its bare bones sort of plot and throwing in a lot of extra stuff. And they do throw in a lot of extra stuff. So as an adaptation, we get changes big and small. We get Kevin and Dana, as Karen mentioned, here it's a casual hookup. And in the book, they're a married couple. And what does that do? Well, it does a lot of things. First of all, it makes me worry that Kevin is going to bail at any moment, Mm -hmm. which is not really a thing in the book, right? They are a couple couple. Mm -hmm. But it also, a big theme of the book, Aisha, is how him posing as her owner affects their relationship. Right. And that is completely missing here because they don't have a relationship. How did that change uh, or how did that affect work on folks? Yeah, for me, that was a central problem because I didn't know going into it that they had been married. But after doing a little Googling mm-hmm. halfway through the show, I was like, oh, they in the book, they were married. And I was like, that's a really weird choice to try and both build up this world and then also try to build up this relationship between the two of them who have never, it's not even like they were friends before this. They had never met. Mm-hmm. And in the present day, this is all happening over the course of maybe two or three days. Again, that it didn't work for me. And so that whole master relationship thing, it kind of made Kevin, for the first two or three episodes, he mostly just kind of looks uncomfortable being... Mm-hmm. being a white man and being considered a master. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's fun for maybe one episode, but then after that I needed more and I, I, it didn't work for me with that relationship. I feel like it it just felt kind of disconnected. You know, one thing about this series is that um, in terms of like my expectations, you know, when we talk about the book, it's spoken as a science fiction book that is also replicating a lot of qualities of slave narratives. Mm -hmm. But the series feels much more a sort of typical time travel TV series to the point that initially, once I'd finished it, the first thing I started thinking about sort of in comparison was Outlander. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you have this woman who, because of her job, has, you know, sort of an advanced knowledge of medicine, right, of a specialty that we don't necessarily um, associate with women in the times that they're traveling back to, right? It's almost sort of less horrifying and more adventurous, engaging in a way Mm -hmm. than I maybe would have expected going off of the book. Possibly that's a decision to sort of draw in more viewers. You know, and the other thing because these two are strangers to each other, essentially, and they barely know each other, it really makes everything that they're sort of dropped into that much more peculiar and foreign and 
presents more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. You could see that as kind of explaining Kevin sort of standing around dumbfounded, not really knowing what to do, right? Because mm-hmm. he he doesn't really have much of an emotional connection to this woman, you know, when she starts just suddenly disappearing and then showing up, you know, on the floor of her empty house, yep. screaming. <laughs> Dana. 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 <laughs> At the same time, I don't know, I think it's almost kind of refreshing because they're both sort of experiencing this very weird thing. And it's almost like they're trauma bonding. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, because they both had difficult childhoods, which Mm -hmm. we find out as the the episodes go on. Right. Both of them, their parents are dead. Mm-hmm. And he's he's had a drug issue in the past. An alcohol issue, I think. Yep. Or alcohol, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, Karen, mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts about the Dana-Kevin of it all? You know, it didn't seem all that weird to me from a 2022 perspective. Uh-huh. So I didn't think that was all that odd. I do remember thinking as I was watching this go on, the show seems to have two kinds of white people. They have the um, sort of plantation villains, Mm -hmm. of which Mr. Whalen is clearly part of the problem. And Rufus, their son, Margaret, and Whalen's son, seems to be on the precipice of going either way. Mm -hmm. You know, part of why Dana keeps allowing herself to be pulled back or not resisting it is because she understands that because of some kind of cosmic interconnectedness, if Rufus no longer exists, then she won't either. And I think her own self-interest says, yeah, I got to be here. And so I have to go back and catch this little white kid. So that while most of the white people that we see in the series are slave owners or people who are at least not resisting the notion of slavery. You have a few here and there, which would be Kevin, when at some point says, you know, I don't think I can do this anymore. And I'll be here waiting for you when you get back. I want to make sure you have what you need to go back. But this isn't my place. And I'm not comfortable with it. And I don't know why I did it. I don't think I should do it anymore. And she looks shocked. You know, he's sort of been with her in the middle of all of this for a long time. And now all of a sudden to take this rational, I thought extremely rational point of view. So uh, yeah, get out if you can get out. Yeah. Not his family. <laughs> yeah, not his family, not his problem. I just met you. And I just met yeah. you. Yeah. But here's here's what I think is smart, right? About both the show and the book. Uh, metaphorically, the fact that she brings Kevin back with her, that is a very clever take on how relationships work because my trauma becomes your trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And though... You may be systematically, you know, better able to process it either because, you know, in a relationship you've had more therapy than I have or because in this case you're white in a racist system. It still affects you. It doesn't affect you nearly to the degree it affects me, but you're in it. You're still in it in this system. I like that a lot. Yeah. I guess where I come down on it, though, is that like at the end of the day, it feels kind of like it also becomes as much Kevin's sort of awakening as it does hers. And I guess I'm just a little less interested in, maybe this is just uncharitable of me, but like I'm a little less interested in seeing the white guy kind of try to figure out how he's mm. <laughs> part of the problem. It, it just felt a little too, like, and I'm curious if the, if how much of that is in the book because it, it does feel a little 2022, we've got to mm-hmm. yeah. appeal to the white viewers of this show as well, mm-hmm. the white progressive mm-hmm. viewers. Yeah, we get a lot more between Kevin and especially Tom, the slave owner. There's a lot more devoted 
to this, just in this first like third of the book that this covers, we're getting a lot more with Kevin in the past than we do in the book. Mm. Can we jump ahead to the present day storyline, that whole thing with the nosy neighbors that really felt really antic? There is all of this screaming and this wild, are you being harmed? No, what happened to your face? Okay. Look, if you are in some sort of danger, just say something, it's okay. You don't have to be afraid of this man. Um, Please leave us alone. It was over the top. Yeah. It throws off the tone. And a lot of the modern day stuff adds a little something. But also it takes away because we get all the stuff with cell phones and texting. There's this one scene where the uh, uncle phones the aunt so that she can talk to Dana on speaker, which is really dramatically not satisfying. I'm like, why is this here? Is this to say that we're all disconnected and isolated Mm -hmm. to our family? I didn't feel like the modern day stuff was working as hard as the past stuff. What do you guys think? The neighbors feel they're bumping up against caricature. Especially, yeah. Yeah. You know, particularly, I think there's almost a lost opportunity because Dana has bought this house in is supposedly Silver Lake adjacent. Mm -hmm. There's almost a missed opportunity for a sort of woo-woo element that you can give to these neighbors to kind of round them out, um, as opposed to just being nosy and obsessed and always peeking through the curtains, you know? And I don't know if Brandon has plans to to make more sort of uh, grander thematic connections between, you know, say the slave patrol and the cops that get called to the house. Mm-hmm. There's really just a lot left up in the air you know, with the question of how is this going to work if it gets another season, uh, which I do hope it does. Mm-hmm. There are definitely a lot of loose ends. I feel like this show wants us to think of these neighbors as Karens, but at the end of the day, I don't blame them for being nosy because they, they're they hearing literal screams Scream. from yeah. the next yeah. door. Exactly. Um, believe me, like they're kind of irritating. And I bet even if there weren't screams, they would probably be nosy neighbors. I get that sense. But mm-hmm. I agree that it felt a little dialed up to 100 in a way that doesn't pay off satisfyingly. Yeah. Mm. I didn't always understand Dana's choices to withhold as much information as she did and then to call Kevin out for withholding information. But that said, I, I forgave that because at the end of the day, like she adapted really fast to what was happening to her, which I was grateful for because the, my least favorite thing about any fantasy supernatural thing is weird thing happens, the audience sees weird thing happens, and then every character has to play catch up to, did this weird thing happen? Oh, you're, you're crazy. Like, that just, <sighs> that is not increasing tension. That is just increasing frustration. But mostly, though, speaking of frustration, this series does not end, it stops. And as a result, I don't want it to reduce this to purely transactional, but I put in my time. I need a resolution or at least some sense, some clearer sense of where we're headed. And I don't get that here. And I think folks should know <laughs> In this age, when shows are canceled while they are in production, you have to factor that into the equation. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's written as though it were a mid-season finale where you know you're coming back in like a month or two. Exactly. But it really should have tied up a little bit more so that you leave some morsels, give some sort of satisfaction, because, again, this is a season finale, I guess, now that I realize it's not a a one-and-done miniseries. Big mid-season finale energy. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, well, we want to know what you think about Kindred. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH, and that brings us to the end of our show. Aisha Harris, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Soraya Nadia McDonald, thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, of course, thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This episode was produced by Candice Lim and edited by Jessica Reedy, and Hello Come In provides our theme music. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow when we will be talking about The Best Man, The Final Chapters. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.